Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's an impromptu phone-recorded episode of the Really Awful Movies podcast, Meet Cleaver Massacre, 70s film, um, a.k.a. Hollywood Meet Cleaver Massacre, and it uh, is a very, very, very low-budget, weird 70s affair that uh, gives me kind of a similar vibe to uh, a little bit of uh, some of the exploitative aspects of maybe Last House on the Left with a little bit of a psychedelic nightmare in a damaged brain feel to it at times. Uh, this is one that does deal with uh, an aspect of mental illness and is a real odd duck to say the least not to mention the fact that there are actually no meat cleavers used in the film and it was just a cheap cash-in to uh, sort of follow up on the uh, then success of the texas chainsaw massacre and uh, all that had happened in the uh, in the mid 70s when that one was released i believe this one had a release date uh, that was a little bit after i should also mention that there's a little bit of a sleazy Charles Bukowski-esque uh, L.A. down-and-out uh, degenerate vibe to this one uh, that'll conjure up, I think, the likes of a Don't Answer the Phone with that kind of real gritty City of Angels sort of uh, dirt and grime appeal and then very grindhouse kind of appeal. This is a, an, a really strange one in that we get an intro courtesy of Christopher Lee and what you are about to see you may find hard to believe and this was actually recorded for a different movie and they sold the rights without uh, Sir Christopher's permission and it ended up introducing this movie instead of how it was originally intended which you could see that there was definitely a means by which this would work but clearly based on the mise-en-scene from where uh, Lee is sitting uh, he's meant to be an anthropology professor and uh, kind of a Indiana Jones type and he's behind this this uh, the desk and there's all these accoutrements from ancient Egypt the nefriti and uh, different symbols and uh, clearly this was to be part of some film that uh, had some kind of Egyptian lore meanwhile Meat Cleaver Massacre has nothing of the sort in fact it uh, transposes it into i think uh, celtic lore and there's this brief discussion at the beginning of the film about narak and this this sinister demon and the this gallic language mumbo jumbo and uh, all this nonsense in an intro to anthropology type class which it should be said features some of the oldest undergrads you'll ever see ever i mean these guys look like they're pushing 40 and look like actually contemporaries of the professor now uh, the professor in question is one dr cantrell 
and this is his specialty, and uh, he goes into all this uh, rites and uh, and all these uh, belief systems of uh, ancient peoples of the of the British Isles, and everyone is seemingly transfixed by this lecture, with the exception of these four students who come from disparate backgrounds, one of whom runs a uh, theater and is a projectionist, and the others, uh, well, one's a mechanic as well, I believe. I can't remember what the other to do but for whatever reason they hatched this plan to i guess i can't even recall in one instance to scare the professor another one wants to murder him i believe and they have this kind of manson-esque home invasion style assault on this person's hollywood hills home and they scale the fence. They even do the dog in, which is, uh, you know, poor Fido in this one with a, a bloody knife. And they batter the professor in the back of the noggin, but don't kill him, but just severely, like, give him a, a severe lacerations and skull fractures and beat him to the point where doctors say he's become uh, a paraplegic from the neck down. And they are unequivocal and certain as to whether he will actually regain his uh, faculties of speech, which is uh, quite good for the attackers, at least anyway, who uh, go on to kill the rest of the members of the professor's family. And then this is where the movie gets kind of interesting and weird and surreal and phantasmagorical and psychedelic, in fact, and really quite uh, quite vivid in many respects and, and, uh, and very weird and convoluted is that when you hear the phrase like personal demons, it conjures up people who are consumed by something from their past. And like that, these four assailants are visited by these creatures uh, seemingly from the great beyond who are actually summoned by the doc in his kind of um, uh, subconscious or unconscious, I guess, uh, state as he's uh, practically uh, brain dead and uh, convalescing with a tube up his nostril and he seems to be calling these beings to do his bidding to uh, exert revenge on on the perps who murdered his family and left him in a coma so very very weird stuff you get almost this oliver stone doors-esque sequence where one of the uh, perps is wandering around through the uh the um, california desert and his uh something ex ex explodes through his chest and he's not long for this earth. Another instance, you have a mechanic who gets the uh, hood of a car slammed down on him repeatedly and uh, thereby killing him. And each one of these uh, perps is visited by these strange deaths, culminating in the summoning of this demon that looks a little bit like the swamp thing. That is a very, very odd indeed. And all these these uh, visions and sequences of these psychopaths being uh, really tormented by uh, what they've done and these these uh, very, very scary uh, uh, images, which is actually quite neat and quite uh, evocative and quite cool in a way. Uh, unfortunately for, uh, I believe it's Eli Wood is the filmmaker who never did anything else other than this, you could say perhaps somewhat uh, unsurprisingly, but you, what you have is a film that's heavily padded with some of the uh, scenescapes and some of Skid Row and some of, uh, some of the sleazy underbelly of mid-70s Los Angeles, and you have the, some of the uh, strip clubs being featured, like the, there's, I think the 69 Club and various uh, brothels, and you have these 
protracted sex scenes and you have these uh, scenescapes of again uh, the gritty streets of Los Angeles again just to pad the runtime and to give this thing a little bit and, and that's saying something too this is only an 80 minute feature but you have these sequences and you have one of the perps who's uh, romancing a, uh, a prostitute for some reason and that's why I alluded earlier to uh, don't answer the phone which uh, if you haven't seen it is this uh, psychopath who's got daddy issues and begins strangling a bunch of ladies of the evening in uh, in La La Land as well so that that's kind of uh, there there's uh, parallels you can draw between these two films here but he has this romance with this uh, member of the world's oldest profession and they have this dialogue and this kind of a touching scene where they're getting amorous and yet he's consumed by these visions of uh, his deed and these demons that are visited on him which are, are strange too because some of the images they show at the beginning of the film are almost Goya-esque in their grotesqueness and uh, really don't seem to vibe or jive with the uh, Celtic mythology or, or and certainly not uh, Christopher Christopher Lee uh, his, his talk from his uh, pseudo office there at the beginning of the film and uh, God you gotta love Christopher Lee I was just thinking actually about revisiting the Wicker Man and uh, of course uh, you know Lee's iconic Dracula performances and less iconic role in uh, Howling 2 but uh, yeah it, it's really weird to see him here and he actually dropped a potential Lee case that he was going to make against the producers because he figured it would be too protracted and too drawn out to really uh, make it worth his while. So he's I'm sure he's probably done worse films, but I, th I think there's something to be said for this. I mean, it's nowhere near as meandering and plodding as Nightmare in a Damaged Brain, but it has this kind of, uh, again, this surreal, strange, almost dreamlike quality that uh, is kind of in keeping with uh, Malatesta's uh, um, Theater of Blood or Carnival of Blood. I can't remember the title of that one, but definitely some strange visuals of these long hallways and these uh, strange demons they have uh, there's some decent practical effects the the swamp thing creature reveal toward the end isn't the most compelling thing i've ever seen but uh, there's also quite a good uh, police procedural element too where this uh, mustachioed portly very very 70s uh, detective is on the case putting forward these uh, kinds of theories about uh, how these a uh, series of uh, of uh, murders have uh, taken place the detective is a really uh, weird and, and nutty character as well. Like, again, to pad the runtime, you see this sort of walrus-type figure, this David Crosby from Crosby, Stills and Nash-looking slob. Looks a little bit like that stand-up comedian Stavros Halkius, a little, a little bit. And you just basically see him wandering... Uh, along the beach through the surf in uh, in Los Angeles and it just like this five minute uh, segment that doesn't seem to be particularly <laughs> pertinent to the story as a whole and you see him actually in, become involved and not exactly in the most dogged pursuit that you can imagine of these uh, of the the attack on the professor and his family but he eventually comes up with a theory that's outlandish only insofar as he's really putting forward the, the entire premise of the movie and he puts it to the last surviving perp. But it just seems like an odd thing to actually say that, uh, to actually buy into the possibility that potentially 
the professor while convalescing and recovering in a hospital bed is actually summoning some type of demon and it just this seems like a rather ludicrous idea it, well it's something that we as viewers can appreciate it's it's hardly something you'd you'd have one of your um characters actually acknowledge in the film and it's it's sort of this odd almost fourth wall breaking uh, conceit that is well i mean a little bit baffling and mind-boggling and and very very strange as is the fact that this one actually got a blu-ray release which i'm equally surprised by uh, to the extent that uh, scream factory uh, God love them, and to their credit, has invested in this because I think they've put out some uh, scant, I think, 1,500 copies that'll be made available. And and dare I say, with the economics being as they are, they'd be hard pressed to maybe even sell the lot of them. It doesn't seem like much, and it, it it is amazing to me how this type of business can continue to survive. And and uh, God bless people who are still into collecting physical media because. There's a, a possibility that the fewer people engage with this kind of behavior and this kind of collecting behavior, then obviously the uh, the economics and the the uh, ability of these companies to scale and and uh, do these kinds of transfers and do these uh, kinds of Blu-ray and uh, 4K and whatnot uh, uh, pristine stellar releases becomes uh, diminished. So uh, good on Scream Factory for putting this one out and at least uh, satiating the fans of, of uh, this film as I imagine as few of them as they are because I can't see how this has that much prominence it seems like a somewhat of a afterthought when you talk about all the weird films that have uh, come out in the 70s that's for sure and uh, but given its its strange backstory the association with Christopher Lee and obviously in the first when the film was first released getting top billing to put bums in seats uh, this is definitely a weird one and definitely something that kind of lured me in after a kind of a lackluster beginning but there's something about the uh, psycho hippie manson-esque uh, uh, los angeles bukowski lunacy surrounding this one that makes it i think a, a worthy one to actually check out and i'm going to surprise myself here by because because the first you know 20 minutes or so you're just I don't know, mystified and befuddled by the, the proceedings, but I'm going to give this a solid, capable 3 out of 5, and I think whatever you want to call it, Meat Cleaver Massacre, Sans Meat Cleavers, or uh, as it went in uh, two uh, releases, one in the 77-minute and another an 85-minute cut, Hollywood Meat Cleaver Massacre, a little more accurate at least with the locale, uh, super fun at times and uh, very, very strange as befits a lot of 70s horror where they kind of delighted in in kind of uh, being quirky and idiosyncratic in a way that I think is not as much rewarded today, especially when you see the kind of uh, vitriol and uh, reaction uh, spewed against the $15,000 Skinema rink, which is uh, obviously very uh, analog and experimental and weird and, and admittedly not very good, but the, the kind of uh, flack that that one caught when and I think Barb's should have been uh, directed uh, Bloomhouse's way for the, some of the crap they've put out. I think it's it speaks volumes anyway. And, uh, well, the 70s were a weird time, and this one was a weird film, and I think uh, weird people should uh, check it out. Hopefully you continue to check out the podcast. Back to regularly scheduled programming next week, also with a better mic and my uh, typical setup. I uh, hope you can bear with me on uh, the recording of this one. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.
Thank mm-hmm. you.